Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. Hey folks, we are heading into SBGAN Journal Club with Dr. Andreas Jenke. Andreas has chosen for us today two articles from the most recent number of JPGN, one of which is titled Protocol Biopsies in Pediatric Liver Transplantation Recipients Improve Guest sorry, improve graft histology and personalized immunosuppression by Karbaum et al. from Hamburg. And the other, trough concentration response in infliximab and adalimumab treated children with inflammatory bowel disease following treatment adjustment, a pharmacokinetic model. And yes, I had to draw breath in each of those titles. That's from an Israeli treatment center, and let me scroll down. Yep, Schneider Children's Medical Center, the uh, Hochburg, the, the capital of pediatric disease in Israel. Absolutely. You're right. Now, you chose these two for us, and I find them interesting. What do you want our listeners to take away in terms of how the study might have been improved and what does it tell us that we can use? Let's start with that liver work. Well, this liver work um, comes from Hamburg, single center on liver transplantation. And we always follow protocols and rules, but it's always important to look whether these rules are really reasonable or if there are any consequences. Are they productive? Or they, productive. Yeah. Do they let us monitor our patient's status better? Do they let us improve our patient's status? And, of course, even though you might argue um, a liver biopsy is just a very small procedure, it has its risk, and also there there's a lot of fear and worries by the parents or probably even by the patients. So um, you need to be sure that what you're doing is important and has consequences. And I think Carbaum and um, her colleagues show this quite nicely. So um, they first of all found that in more than 50% of the cases after liver transplantation, there is a certain degree of liver fibrosis. Uh, which um, develops after two, three, four years. Um, and it's clinically inapparent, isn't it? Yes, so no, no liver, elevated liver enzymes, so basically no CRP, no, um, no nothing. So, so it's inapparent, and um, the only way to figure that out is obviously liver biopsy. I'd like to ask a question about about interpretation of those liver biopsy specimens, I understand that they were all looked at by experienced histopathologists. But do you know, when I think about fibrosis in a post-transplant pediatric liver, I'm impressed by how much of the architectural distortion is not really fibrosis so much as it is results of malperfusion. Here we have a liver that has many little microthromboses, that is growing and developing a little bit differently, that it may not be fibrotic, but it may be approaching a nodular hyperplasia. 
Now, I'm not certain that that's really relevant to the message here, but I would think that in addressing the evaluation of pediatric transplanted liver biopsies, particular care be given to distinguishing a post-inflammatory fibrosis or an inflammatory fibrosis from a malperfusional fibrosis or malperfusional architectural distortion. Now, that's, that's, something, that's something for histopathologists uh, to worry well, about, but there it is. I mean, of course, you are an expert in this field, so I can just um, follow the article. And what I can see is that um, they used a lot of scoring system, different scoring system, to make sure that there is some kind of objective measurement of the fibrosis. So... Um, I have the feeling that um, they've been very diligent in trying to to make this as objective as possible. Got it. Well, that's good news. But then you have, and the end result is, I think that you have a cohort of 22 patients, 22 patients who had both a liver biopsy per protocol and a follow-up liver biopsy. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So, so let me let me move one step back. Oh, so okay. I'm sorry for that. Okay. But first of all, I would like to mention that we we have 48 um, in 48 cases. Um, they they they've been some adjustments of the therapy, which is like 35% of all biopsies taken after five years after the liver transplantation. So I think this is reasonable. So so if you take the liver biopsy after five years and there are consequences to this liver biopsy in more in, third in of the cases. In half of the cases, 45%, yeah. you say? No, 35. Oh, big pardon. Sorry, big sorry. Pardon. My, might be my problem, my, my mistake. So I think this is first, first takeaway message is it's correct to take the liver biopsy because it has consequences. It's justified. Yes. And then the second point, as you correctly mentioned, in 22 of these 48 patients, there was a follow-up biopsy. And this is quite interesting because um, in both cases, um, in, in, in the case where the immunosuppression was um, increased, there was a, an improvement in the um, liver fibrosis so which clearly demonstrates that the the measures are effective and that the fibrosis even after five years can be in some way healed or stopped or modified and what i think it's even more important that in the cases where the immunosuppression was decreased or even stopped there was no new liver fibrosis so it's safe From my point of view, as a non-expert um, hepatologist, to decrease and in some cases even stop the immunosuppressive therapy after five years if there is no sign for liver fibrosis or inflammation on the liver biopsy. That's a safe bet then, that if on protocol biopsy at five years you diminish or discontinue immunosuppression, having before you the evidence of a protocol biopsy that is interpreted as showing no inflammation. Yeah. Then, in a protocol biopsy carried out sometime thereafter, you can expect your patient not to have done worse. 
and that patient will not be dealing with the adverse effects, the side effects of immunosuppression that she or he does not need. Yeah. Nicely well, summarized. That's, that's, uh, that's a reasonable takeaway message. Right. Have we chewed all the juice out of that paper? I think so. I mean, we have the usual limitations, single center, retrospective, but this is part of the game, I would say. So you need to start at some point. And um, of course, it would be nice to have more data from different centers, but it's a good starting point. I wish too that we had a bit more context in the sense of how many centers are following similar protocols and how many are coming up with similar results from this application of protocol biopsy data. Maybe that's something that a listener or two will take as an inspiration to go and knock on their histopathologist's door. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's move to the next paper. The next paper, the next paper is from Israel, as I mentioned, and it has to do with trough measurements in kids who are receiving antibody therapy for inflammatory bowel disease and the decision to treat not the patient's complaint, but the patient's trough level. Have I got that right? Well, this is one aspect, Okay. but um, the other aspect is that um, they want to know um, or give the physician's perspective what they can expect the trough level to be if they increase the dose or decrease um, the interval so, so that you get a feeling what you are actually doing. So, for example, um, if I have a patient um, who has a low trough level, for example, for adalimumab, and um, I reduce the interval from two weekly to once a week. So what can I expect? That um, the trough level doubles or whatever. And in fact, for adalimumab, it was quite impressive that there is a linear correlation. So it's almost that you, you, you halve the, the, the interval from two to one week and you double the trough level. So this is very easy, actually. And that's and nice. useful. That's, yes, absolutely. You can predict from that. Yeah, yeah. That's not the case with uh, infl infliximab? No, with uh, infliximab, it's a little bit more complicated. But um, this is, from my perspective, also not unexpected because um, adalimumab you just give in a very defined way. So it's not... You, you just give 160, 80, 40, 40, and it does not depend so much on, on the weight of the patient. This is different with infliximab. We usually have these starting dose of 5 milligram per kilogram per day. And, um, of course, if you um, take into account the actual weight of the patient, you also have a different dynamic. And this is also reflected by the fact that it's a little bit more complicated to predict um, the um, trough levels after you've changed the medication, but it's possible. So It strikes me as odd. I am taking away from what you've said just now the idea that dose-response curves for these agents in terms of 
trough-level response curves are not generally available? No. They are not. And are trough levels measured as a matter of routine in all hospitals? Well, it should, I I would say, um, but not... You uh, have a counterexample, I can tell. Well, there are counterexamples, and I do not want to blame anyone, but sometimes it takes some time um, before new ideas become routine practice. Sure. So I think sure. it this idea of trough levels came up five to eight years ago, and from my personal point of view, everyone should measure the trough levels at every visit at the hospital or wherever the patient get their their medication. Just an tangent here. How often do how often should people be measuring antibodies against these agents? Well, I can always say what what um, what we do do in our hospital. If we measure the trough level, we also measure the antibodies at the same time. Yeah. So, so you have a feeling for whether or not. Yeah. Um, whether or not there's actually enough active agent reaching the patient's gut. Right. Understood. Okay. And what's also quite interesting here in this study is that um, they didn't wait for clinical symptoms to adjust the medication or to take a trough level. So they measured the trough level routinely. And um, this is a more proactive approach to the disease it's a more approach it's a more proactive approach to monitoring the disease but then there's the next step of acting on that information yes of course they did in this study so so that's why um they they measured the trough levels and that's also why we get um get um, the data on the new trough levels so but i think this is a little bit kind of pity because we do not get um um, information on the on the clinical symptoms and um, whether the patients um, profit from this um, proactive um, approach. Um, so I would highly recommend the authors to just continue this this study, include clinical data, and see whether this proactive approach with um, with um, guiding the, the, the medication based on the regularly measured trough levels actually improved the outcome of the patients? Well, that's clearly essential. If you're going to make an adjustment, it's like with those follow-up protocol biopsies from Hamburg. You have to know whether or not the information that you've gathered has been useful in terms of making the patient's outcome better. In Hamburg, that second biopsy, that follow-up biopsy, demonstrated very nicely that to take the first protocol biopsy had a sufficient justification, was could be considered done for a proper reason. We're not quite to that point with altering medication in response to trough levels for these agents because we lack the, and how did the patient do thereafter, question answers yes so um, but I would personally expect that they do better if we adjust um, the medication before they develop clinical symptoms or indeed reduce the medication yeah in case the trough levels are mm. above what seems to be required yeah. 
One important point I, I just want to mention is that in this study they found that perianal disease makes it more difficult to predict the trough levels after you've changed your medication. Well, I don't understand that quite. I, 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 take, I take the point that for somebody to have perianal disease means that her or his disease is wicked bad. But why that should make a difference to drug metabolism is yet... Uh, Andreas, you're making the face that I want to make. You're making the face that says, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either, but I can speculate. I mean, if you... Uh, speculation if, is all we do here. Yeah. And speculation is always the start um, to a new theory. Let's uh, find which, a hypothesis. Let's test it. Yeah, so What's your hypothesis? I would guess that um, due to the more severe disease, there is more, more TNF-alpha circulating in the body. And so you naturally need more antibody to neutralize this TNF-alpha. Antibody? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. okay. More agent, yeah. more agent. More yeah. infliximab or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Andreas, it's been a lot of fun doing these journal clubs with you. And I'm sorry to say that your participation is coming to an end as you rotate away from your position in Espagan that has required you to take this on. Yeah, that's right. So, so the next education secretary, Ilse Bruckert, is going to decide um, who's going to do the general club in the future. It was a pleasure to discuss the articles with you, and I think I will continue for two or three more episodes, but then maybe it's time for new blood. Mm, you, um, you feel yourself drained. Oh, no. No, no, okay. I just wanted to know if my vampirism had any effect. Not yet. Oh, Not yet. Okay, <laughs> all right then. Well, Andreas, thank you, and I'm very pleased to learn that this is not our last encounter in this format. And I trust that our listeners will also be pleased that we'll still be hearing from Andreas in this respect for some time to come. Thank you again. Thank you, Alex. See you next time. <laughs>